Welcome to episode six of season one of How to Win with Patents and IP. This is Jackie Hutter coming to you from the worldwide shed quarters of the Hutter Group in beautiful Decatur, Georgia. In this podcast, which is the last one of season one, I'm going to be talking to you about methods other than patents and how to win with patents and IP, because that's in the title, right? In a nutshell, there's a lot of ways to create value with intellectual property and intangible assets that are not patents, many of which are often overlooked. And while it may not be relevant to a lot of listeners, ultimately, knowing about them can make you better able to see when they may be appropriate. Before we get into the substance of this discussion, I'll have to do my regular bit of housekeeping. The views expressed in this podcast are mine as a commentator on IP and patent strategy and do not in any manner constitute legal advice. Anybody seeking to create and deploy intellectual property to enhance their own business value is strongly encouraged to vet and select an IP team that has been trained and has proven success in client-centric approaches to generating patents and other forms of IP. Moreover, one needs to be prepared to closely manage the work that they do to make sure that the desired business outcomes are in fact attained. Now let's get started on this discussion of other forms of IP than patents. There's an old saying that when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And certainly this can apply when you go see a patent attorney and ask her whether or not you should get a patent. Or put another way, as a mentor of mine used to say, when a client comes to us and asks us whether we should get a patent, it's the proverbial fox guarding the hen house situation. Of course you need a patent because that's what I do and you're coming to see me. So what else would I tell you? Now, of course, I can't tell you you need a patent when it's not professionally appropriate or ethical for me to do so. But just because it may be professionally and ethically appropriate for a patent professional to go ahead and get you a patent on what you bring to them, doesn't mean it makes business sense for you to go ahead and do it. And remember, the whole purpose of this podcast series is to look at patents and intellectual property from a business perspective, not a legal perspective. And from that context, not getting a patent is a patent strategy if you've made the decision for articulatable business reasons. In other words, once you've defined your desired business outcome and it turns out that patents won't help you get there, then that's a patent strategy. Of course, not getting a patent doesn't make a patent attorney any money, so they need to be left out of the equation here. And we need to move on to the discussion of how can a business identify, capture, and protect so that they can realize intellectual property value that is not in the form of patents. Let's dive into the basics a little bit here so we can understand things holistically. There are four types of intellectual property that are effectively recognized by the law and therefore lawyers are able to recognize themselves. We, Of course, we have patents, which we're not going to talk about in detail today. We have trademarks, copyrights, and trade secrets. And there are legal rules, there are laws associated with each of those. And when we're in law school, we learn about all of these. Of course, trademarks are a brand signifier and they can be very important to a business in capturing value. And sometimes it's the biggest form of value. For example, if your company develops a service and that service becomes very popular and successful and it becomes the go-to service in a particular industry, then your brand name is probably going to be very recognizable in the relevant industry. And you definitely should think about going ahead and developing a branding trademark strategy associated with that. Importantly, however, until your customer 
associates your brand name or your company name with something that they select, it really doesn't make sense to create a trademark strategy. Of course, it may make sense to trademark your company name, but until a company is, has a validated customer set, has people who are buying them and selecting them because they love their product or service, filing a trademark typically is a, is a waste of time and money. Now, of course, if you're an established company and you have customers and your customers continually come to you, that's a whole different issue. More often than not, when I see a early stage company filing a trademark application and spending the money to get their trademark, they end up dropping that trademark at a later date because their business strategy is pivoted. Nonetheless, trademarks can be a very important business strategy. But again, what we do from a strategy perspective is defining a desired business outcome and then working backwards. So if it becomes part of your business strategy to have your customers select your brand and to recognize your brand, then trademarks may be an appropriate strategy. But you don't get a trademark just because you can. And please, 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 if you're a startup company or early stage company, don't clear your trademark by seeing whether the URL is free. The availability of a URL does not have anything to do with the availability of the trademark in the trademark office. I can't tell you how many times I have seen in my work with innovators that they take a couple of vowels out of an otherwise common word clear the URL and it turns out that word is actually close to an existing trademark and they, they get stuck and they need to change. And that change can cause a lot of loss of value in their business if their customers have started to recognize them in the marketplace. This doesn't mean that you have to go and hire a very expensive trademark attorney to do a clearance search for you. Definitely not. You just need to go to the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office and do your own search in the trademark office. Because as of yet, Google does not index trademarks in the trademark office like they do patents. So my general recommendation would be at an early stage, pick a company name, pick a brand name that's meaningful to you. Make sure you get a URL or group of URLs that make sense. Search it in the trademark office to make sure it's clear. And move forward to validate the customer. And if you have a customer, if you land on those brand names, if you land on those corporate names, be prepared to go back and develop a trademark strategy that aligns with your identified business strategy. But don't overthink things in the trademark space until you have those customers. Certainly when you have those customers, you have to work hard to make sure that you're capturing the business value that's associated with your trademarks, with your brand names, with your customer recognition. But quite frankly, that's a great problem to have because you've got customers. Moving on to copyrights. I have to admit here that copyrights haven't been a big thing in my practice over the years. Generally speaking, in my practice, I tell clients that if you have a copyright, you should go ahead and record it yourself in the Library of Congress. It's very inexpensive, and there's no reason to hire a lawyer to do this for you. That being said, if the way that you are going to capture business value is via your music, your literary works, things that are appropriately copyrightable, you do need to generate a copyright strategy. The good news is that there are some entrepreneurial companies popping up here and there that are helping musicians and folks in adjacent spaces protect themselves with copyrights and certainly helping them navigate some of the very, very complex areas of copyright law. So while I think there'll be very few people who are in the literary space, in the musician space, or listening to this podcast, if anybody is and would like more information on some of these streamlined services for helping you get your copyrights registered, please feel free to contact me via email. 
And that's basically all I'm going to say about copyrights here. But again, it could be a very huge part of your business value generation if, in fact, copyrights are aligned with your business strategy. Now, moving on to trade secrets. Trade secrets is a subject near and dear to my heart. I spent the first couple of years of my legal career trying to save a company from having its trade secrets stolen by a former employee. And so I learned very early how hard it really is to protect trade secrets, as well as how important they necessarily are to so many companies, even while many companies do so little to actually identify, capture, and protect their trade secrets. By way of background, a trade secret is information that has economic value because of its lack of general knowledge in the relevant industry, and, and this is very important, that the owner takes reasonable steps to maintain its confidentiality. So therefore, trade secrets have value because they're not known by others, and you actually take steps to protect them. And the problem with most trade secret programs at clients is that they don't actually take steps to protect the information. And if you don't take steps to protect the information, then it's not a trade secret under law. So if you as an innovator, if you as a business have information that is known specifically to your employees, to your business, and quite frankly, every company does, but you don't have programs, you don't have processes to protect that information from generalized disclosure, it's not a trade secret. And therefore, if you ever have to go and try to protect that information, for example, if a former employee takes information about your customers or your processes or your formulas, you won't be able to go after them and actually prevail if you have not taken the steps to protect it. I also need to stress here that just having a standard footer that the information contained in this email is confidential, yada, 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 is not protecting your trade secret information. When your documentation shows that everything is covered, it may in fact end up being the case that nothing is protected. Now I will note it's easier today to protect information than it was in the past because we have a centralized repository that is our servers. So for many years, we, we had some kind of lockdown inside corporations that we could pretty much control or be more cognizant of where things were going in and out the organization. However, as I saw with a client of mine last year that's in the cloud security business, it is becoming almost impossible to keep tabs on your trade secret information when it's moving freely amongst various APIs as well as the fact that information no longer resides on one's own computer, it sits up in the cloud, and therefore is vulnerable to hacking. So I know that going forward, trade secrets are likely going to be a more prevalent issue than they have been in recent years. But importantly, if it's part of your business value to generate and maintain trade secret information, because that's what creates differentiation in the marketplace between you and your competitors, then you need to have a trade secret protection strategy. So now to recap, the four types of legally recognized intellectual property are patents, trademarks, copyrights, and trade secrets. And when you talk to an IP professional, those are the four topics that are most likely to come up. But what if I told you for some companies, their business value lies in an entirely different set of intangible assets? Let me unpack that for you. Intangible assets are a broad category of business value. To use a mathematical representation, if you think about the world of intangible assets being a circle, intellectual property lies within that circle as a Venn diagram. There's a whole lot of other things that are within that 
universe of intangible assets that are not the four categories of intellectual property. To this end, people who are in the valuation business believe that today 90% of more of many companies' value lies in the form of intangible assets. And if you're an early stage company, it's likely that almost 100% of your value lies in the form of intangible assets. But if it's not patents, copyrights, trademarks, and trade secrets, what else is there? Well, we're going to talk about that right now. And if you're not protecting it, it really does not exist for the purposes of valuation. As I characterize it for clients, the definition of intangible assets in your business is that set of value that provides you with differentiation from your competitors. And that if you didn't have it in your company, you would be making a lot less money. Now, of course, it's intangible. It's not a chair. It's not a building. It's not inventory sitting on a shelf. Each of those are examples of tangible assets that if missing from your business would likely result in your making less money. But when we go to intangible assets, my clients can identify things like their employees that have relationships. And if those employees leave, then those relationships go with them and the revenue may also go with them. That wouldn't necessarily be a violation of a non-compete agreement if there was one. It would just be the fact that the relationship didn't exist and therefore the revenue wouldn't be forthcoming if that revenue is based upon a relationship. Similarly, if an employee has a specific skill set that's relevant to a task getting accomplished in the business and they walk out the door, then that task is not necessarily going to be accomplished as efficiently, as effectively as when they were there. So that employee and their skill set is an intangible asset that needs to be recognized so that you can protect it. Now, of course, you can't stop an employee from leaving your company, even if they have a non-compete agreement, because that's just not right and the law doesn't allow it. But by identifying that the employee has a specific skill set or relationships allows you as a manager to make contingency plans that will allow you to retain that value even when they walk out the door. This can be by cross-training, this can be by developing additional relationships, whatever it is in context. The definition of strategy is defining an endpoint and working backwards. Therefore, it follows that if your business strategy is to be able to maintain the revenue once an employee walks out the door, then you need to figure out how to do that before they walk out the door. Another really large area of intangible value that I don't think people pay enough attention to is contracts. Contracts of, for future revenue of relationships with a customer can in fact be classified as intangible assets. Because under my definition, if you did not have those contracts, your, your company's ability to capture value in the future would be diminished. And because your contracts are intangible assets that can be valued, in order to have a strategy that allows you to effectively deploy those intangible assets for value, your company needs to implement a contract management program so that you can identify, capture, and protect that intangible asset value in the form of contracts. But contract management is not just about customer relationships. It's also about your employer relationships, your non-compete agreements, as well as your confidentiality agreements that you have with competitors, that you have with potential partners. Confidentiality agreements are one of my biggest beef with companies that do not have in-house counsel, and even those that have in-house counsel, because people do not give enough 
thought to confidentiality agreements and what they should contain, and most importantly, how they can restrict you in the future. Very often, small, under-resourced companies are very enthusiastic about getting into an agreement with a large company because that might be a potential strategic partner for them. And they sign a confidentiality agreement that restricts them from doing a lot of things in the future. In other words, they will sign a confidentiality agreement that allows them to do something today, but that may greatly restrict their optionality for the future. Put it another way, very often small under-resourced companies that will sign confidentiality agreements willy-nilly or will hire an attorney to review the confidentiality agreement who doesn't really understand what the business dynamics are in the relevant area will actually end up with a confidentiality agreement that acts as a non-compete for them. Because what they'll often find out is that the confidentiality agreement obliges them to maintain secrets that they didn't know that they were getting access to. And that what the confidentiality agreement effectively does is puts them in the middle of two larger competitors who will sue each other at the drop of a hat, which means that the small company will be collateral damage between a broader competitive dynamic that the small company has no business being involved in. This is not to say that confidentiality agreements shouldn't be entered into, but small companies shouldn't necessarily assume that they have no competitive leverage. And they also need to recognize that if they sign these agreements, that they may be hamstrung in the future to develop the value that they're entitled to. In other words, the absence of value may result from signing a confidentiality agreement. Of course, this is not legal advice. I have clients who will enter into confidentiality agreements with the full knowledge that they may need to breach that agreement in the future or they can't fully comply with that agreement. And that's okay because everybody knows that the business dynamics must dictate how your business operates as long as you are as compliant as you need to be in context. And therein lies the rub for management. If you haven't first done the analysis, if you haven't first done, given due consideration to how you're going to act in context and what it will mean for you in the long term, you are not properly aligning your business strategy with your intangible asset strategy. Let's talk about another form of intangible asset value that a lot of people don't realize. If you're a company that has existing distribution channels, that's a huge form of intangible assets that a lot of people don't really realize exists. And to this point, a number of years ago, I had a conversation with the CEO of a company that had longstanding relationships with big box stores. This company was a white label, private label manufacturer of a lot of things that ended up on the shelves in Home Depot and Lowe's. And the problem this manufacturer saw was that it had missed the emergence of a disruptive new technology. Possibly, to be frank, they had been fat, dumb, and happy on the sales that they were obtaining for years in these big box stores. Because it was caught sleeping, this established company found itself facing hundreds, if not thousands, of patents that made it appear impossible to actually remain in the market. The company wanted to bring me in to help them analyze all these patents, which would have been a gargantuan job. And certainly, I could never have assured them that they wouldn't be subject to patent infringement liability because when there's that many patents, you probably infringe more than one. So while this established company did not have patents as part of its business strategy, the company nonetheless had incredibly valuable intangible assets in the form of its distribution channels at these big box stores. While there was a number of companies innovating in the space that had obtained broad patent protection, these innovators were unable to make it into the marketplace because they did not have the existing relationships with the big box stores. 
Moreover, these innovators did not have the manufacturing capabilities that this established company had, nor did they have other capabilities such as regulatory knowledge, legal knowledge, and all the stuff that goes along with being an established company that's been in the market for a while. So while this company was initially concerned and brought me in to help them understand the patent landscape, which had hundreds, if not thousands of patents, like I said, they really didn't need to understand the patent landscape to the extent they initially thought. Because in order to efficiently and effectively bring their innovations to market, the early stage companies that had innovated in this particular product space needed this large established company to help them make that possible. This meant that the business strategy of the established company then became to identify those companies, those innovators with the best products, and to strategically partner with those companies and to acquire many of those companies so that those patented innovations would now be part of the established company's portfolios. So to put it another way, what the established company initially thought was a patent risk, a patent problem, was actually a massive business opportunity created by their intangible asset value in the form of distribution channels, manufacturing capabilities, and all that stuff that goes along with bringing an innovation to a customer on a shelf in a big box store. It's important to note here that there are any number of intangible assets for any company because intangible assets exist in context. To go back to my definition of intangible assets that I said before, an intangible asset is defined as a competitive differentiation that, if absent, would result in the company making less money. And if the result is that if you don't have that competitive differentiation, you're going to make less money, you better make darn sure you protect it. Or if you can't protect it, make contingency plans for it being absent. Because if you don't, it's quite possible that your business may fail if that intangible asset goes away. Before I wrap up this episode, I also want to stress that because patent and IP strategy is business strategy, you need to continually revisit these topics on a regular basis inside your company. Just because it doesn't make sense today to get a patent because it doesn't align with your business strategy doesn't mean that it doesn't make sense six months from now. Similarly, just because it makes sense today to sign a somewhat onerous confidentiality agreement because you don't have the leverage for negotiation today doesn't mean that it makes sense to sign that same onerous confidentiality agreement six months from now because your leverage may have changed. I like to recommend to clients that intellectual property strategy should be part of the business strategy analysis as regularly as one decides whether to buy new office furniture or hire a new employee. And if you don't do so, you may find out that it's too late to generate the value that you were entitled to. Moreover, I strongly advocate that those companies that are too early stage or too small to hire full-time in-house counsel to assist them align themselves with strategic advisors who can be those eyes and ears for them so that they don't lose the opportunity to identify, capture, and protect intangible value before it's too late. As I've seen so many times in my career, by the time the client realizes there's an issue and picks up the phone to call me for legal advice, it's very often too late, or at a minimum, the issue is very expensive to fix. So as I said in the previous episode in relation to patents, proper planning prevents piss-poor performance. And unless you plan, you can't win. And the whole point of this podcast series is about winning with patents and IP, right? So that brings us to the end of season one of how to win with patents and IP. 
I'll be posting a bonus episode shortly that is an interview of me by a good friend of mine who's also an IP valuation expert, but it'll be a couple of months before I post season two of this podcast series. In the meantime, if you'd like to jumpstart your learning about patents and IP strategy, head on over to my IP Asset Maximizer blog at thehuttergroup.com, where I've been writing about patents and IP strategy since 2008. If you'd like to connect with me directly, you can find information for doing so at my website. I hope that you found the information that I've shared with you over the last six episodes useful and that you are now aware that there may be better ways for you to capture business value by more effectively deploying patents and IP. In other words, you can actually win with patents and IP. See you again in a couple of months.